Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, guys. I think it's safe to say that even a casual observer of the United States Congress would likely conclude that the atmosphere, the interpersonal atmosphere there is not awesome, pretty deeply suboptimal. It seems like the two parties are constantly at each other's throat. The personal relationships that reputedly used to exist across the aisle uh, seem to have dissipated, if, if not just simply disappeared. So this week, we're going we're to take you inside a really interesting experiment that's going on across the pond in the British Parliament. 150 members of parliament there have taken mindfulness training programs. Many of them also sit regularly in private confidential groups where they meet across party lines and, and apparently create real friendships and share some pretty deep stuff. Obviously, this has not created some sort of brigadoon. Um, the whole Brexit situation is clearly pretty choppy, to say the least. But this experiment has apparently made a real difference. Um, so we have two guests this week. One of them is Chris Rowan, who's a member of parliament from Wales. He's been serving since 1997. He says, and you'll hear him say this, hey, he used to be the kind of guy who would scream and shout on the floor of parliament. And that has, uh, that he has subsequently, post-meditation, undergone a real personal transformation. So his story is fascinating. The other guest is Jamie Bristow, who runs a think tank that emerged, that, that grew out of these efforts to teach mindfulness to parliament. It's called the Mindfulness Initiative, and they research how mindfulness can change public policy and healthcare, incarceration, et cetera, et cetera. So that's coming up. First, a very quick item of business is very quick. I just want to uh, quickly highlight one of our favorite meditations in the 10% Happier app. It's called uh, Training the Mind, uh, uh, or more specifically, Jeff Warren's Training the Mind. Jeff Warren is a very good friend and an amazing meditation teacher. Uh, if he if he was a personal trainer, this meditation session uh, would be kind of his full-body workout. He takes you through five mental qualities that he believes are important for a well-rounded meditation practice. Uh, if you want to go check that meditation out, you can just click on the link in the show notes. Or uh, if you are a subscriber to the app, just go in the advanced and unguided section of the singles tab. All right, go check that out. Uh, now, though, here's Chris Ruan and Jamie Bristow. Uh, we talk about – you're going to hear us talk about how mindfulness can boost – positive relationships and communication in high-stakes adversarial situations, how it can reduce unconscious bias. Uh, we talk about the difference, and this is really from Chris when he gets very personal, the difference between living based on intrinsic values versus extrinsic values. So when you're living based on what's meaningful to you as opposed to what's meaningful to the culture or somebody else like your parents. And we talk about whether this kind of uh, mindfulness experiment could be imported here to the U.S., so here we go. Here's Chris Ryan and Jamie Bristow. Nice to see both of you. Mm-hmm. It's good to be here, Dan. Let's just start with some biography. Uh, I'd be curious to hear how each of you got interested in meditation. And by the way, g- give me give me the proper title. How should I address you? Well, uh, Chris. Chris? <laughs> just as simple as that? Uh, absolutely. I'm Chris Ruan, the member of parliament for the Vale of Clwyd, which is in wonderful Wales. I'm a Welsh MP in the United Kingdom Parliament. And... I got uh, into meditation, not mindfulness, 32 years ago. Uh, I was a te- primary school teacher for 15 years and then an MP on and off for 22 years. And as a primary school teacher, 
Our school was being inspected by Her Majesty's inspectorate, and the staff got the jitters, they were shaking. So the school principal brought the nurse in, and she taught us tension and relaxation throughout the body and to use the breath. And I got so much out of that that I wanted to use it with the children in my care. So I started meditating with 40 eight- and nine-year-old children and doing the breath and doing visualizations, and uh, it just worked for me. It worked for them. Yeah, and you stuck with it over time? Uh, no, I, I practiced it uh, for about four or five years with, with the children, and then I came across mindfulness about 12 years ago when I was helping my daughter, Seren, which is Welsh for star in the sky, um, with, her, uh, with her homework, comparative religions. came across Buddhism. I didn't realize the cent- centrality of uh, mindfulness meditation to Buddhism, so uh, I downloaded some podcasts from Spirit Rock in California, I say some, it ended up to be about 300 podcasts. Wow, you went deep. <laughs> about 12 years ago. And I've listened to them on the uh, journey on the train down to London, um, two and a half hours and on the way back. And from your district? From my district. on the, In Wales. Yeah. Down. And we should say Spirit Rock is a, a venerable meditation retreat center in Marin County. Uh, That's right. In California. And Gil Fronstel was, I mean, they had visiting artists on the, on the, pod, on, on the podcast, but... Gil Fronsdale was the kind of anchor man who I listened to for, for six years and, and practiced meditations. And I got so much out of it that uh, in 2013, I thought, uh, or 2012, in fact, I thought that Parliament could benefit with this. We'd just come through uh, the expenses issue, where the expenses scandal, where lots of people were burnt out. Expenses Stress. scandal, we should just say, just say that for, for, there, there were members of Parliament were basically busted spending government dollars for personal stuff. Yes, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and some of it le- illegally, and, uh, and some, I think three or four members of parliament went to jail. Uh, and some of it legally, but uh, people felt it wasn't moral. So there was a whole review of, of expenses. Uh, and pe- people were still stressed like three, four, four years later, still stressed now. Uh, so I thought I, I should have introduced it at the time, but uh, about two or three years afterwards, I thought, I'll take it to Parliament. And I contacted Professor Richard Layard, who wrote a wonderful book, Happiness, A New Science, and The Good Childhood. Uh, Richard is a professor at the London School of Economics and a Labour Lord, and I knew he was well-connected in the uh, in the well-being world. So I approached him, and he put us in contact with the Oxford Mindfulness Centre, Professor Mark Williams. And Mark came down with a wonderful teacher, Chris Cullen, and we introduced our lessons in January 2013. And over the past six, six and a half years, 250 parliamentarians and 350 members of their staff have had mindfulness training. All right, I want to go deep into that. But first, let me just, Jamie, let me get your background (laughs) real quick. So um, I came into this story anyway um, when I was working at Headspace. In 2012, they're a little-known meditation little known app. Meditation app. Well, they were little-known back in the day, anyway. Yeah. They're not little-known now. No, no. We're all any, all of us in the meditation game are standing on your shoulders, figuratively, because you were the you guys were the first meditation app. Yeah, and then back in those days, there was about nine people in the organization and five desks in a small business center in North London, and now, of course, they have hundreds of staff in in California somewhere. Uh, so I was um, um, well. Let me let me rewind and just talk about where, where I got into right. um, mindfulness and meditation. Um, first off, so I, I was lucky enough to come across it when I was in university. 
there was a meditation society. So, you know, I joined the ultimate frisbee club and the football club and the meditation club. And by football, you mean soccer. <laughs> oh, I mean soccer, yes. of course. Proper, proper football. The <laughs> <laughs> real deal. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and so it was just one of those things I picked up and tried and, you know, did it for a few months. And it came and went and it was just another, you know, experience. Uh, and then I, um, I graduated. I, I got into a, um, uh, like a, a big creative agency, advertising agency in London, like a global network. I was working too hard, you know, working long hours. And the culture there was like drinking every night and then drinking too much coffee the next day to get over the night before. And surprise, surprise, I couldn't, I couldn't concentrate for the whatever it is, the crazy 10, 12-hour days I was, I was trying to do. And so I came back to, to meditation in order to be a better advertiser, in order to focus um, focus better. But with that self-regulation benefit that a lot of people come into this stuff for, um, I also then sort of moved on to self-exploration, realized there was kind of more to, to me and, and to the world <laughs> than, um, than I originally thought there was. And that, and that led me to really question what I was doing there, um, whether advertising was right for me, whether advertising was, was right for the world. And um, um, changed my life and ended up in a climate change campaign. Like, uh, so I we went from selling Nissans, Nissans, as I think they call them. <laughs> Nissan, <laughs> yes, <laughs> Nissan. yes. Um, selling four by fours, um, and then a few years later, you know, talking about how we desperately need to to, to reduce our, uh, our carbon emissions to for the survival of our society. So um, uh, that just yeah lit a fire underneath me. Really, that was I realised that 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 mindfulness was what sort of changed my perspective on things. And so I thought, well, maybe if more people knew about this, then, then they would also sort of be more sensitive to the information that's out there uh, and change their perspective also. So that led me to, um, yeah, trying to get a job at Headspace, turned up and said, hey, do you want to, uh, do you want to take me on? Um, that led to being a volunteer with the parliamentary initiative that, that, that kicked off in 2014. So the politicians had been, already been practicing for a year or so on this eight-week mindfulness course. And they started to become interested in the science behind what they'd been learning and the policy implications in health and education, criminal justice system. And so I was one of 15 to 20 volunteers and experts who, who, who showed up to um, help them to create a cross-party um, group, an all-party parliamentary group on mindfulness, which is like um, it's kind of like a student society actually for backbench MPs, so those who aren't in government, who, um, to help them come together on, a, on an issue of mutual interest to inquire into um, that, that area and, and make recommendations for government. Um, so I was, um, I was actually enlisted on the, on the criminal justice strand of that inquiry and we had um, eight events in, in Parliament, eight hearings uh, over 12 months and, and pulled together um, the, uh, the Mindful Nation UK report. And so I was just one person on the team there but then I was asked to take over as director. So... Um, I've been running the, a charity, uh, an education charity, a policy institute, which uh, supports the, this, this group of politicians, helping them do what they do. That's the Mindfulness Initiative. It's the Mindfulness Initiative. And we owe yeah. a great deal to it. And to Jamie as well. Good man. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's go back to the beginning of this Mindfulness Initiative that you provoked, Chris. What was the reaction from your colleagues, the other MPs, the other members of parliament? We've had on this show before um, Tim Ryan, Democrat from Ohio, who's now running for president. Absolutely. Um, and he uh, is a very public meditator, and he started uh, 
what's called the Quiet Time Caucus in the United States Congress. And to my knowledge, he's gotten zero actual members of Congress to meditate. A lot of member, a lot of staffers, but no. Last time I spoke to him, no members of Congress were publicly talking about this. Uh, at least I think maybe some of them had talked about it, but they weren't doing it with him. So anyway, not a huge buy-in. Did you? Did people smirk at you when you started talking about meditation within a political context? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, initially, yes. Uh, but we had 22 members of parliament and members of the House of Lords, peers, uh, on the first uh, class in January 2013. So there was some buy-in. Uh, and I was the recruiting sergeant, and I would pitch it differently to different MPs. MPs that I knew were struggling, I would sit down in the House of Commons tea room, with a cup of tea, and sit down and talk to them about their issues and say, listen, there's a, a nice uh, intervention called mindfulness. Come along and see how, uh, how you feel. Uh, other MPs uh, that, that weren't perhaps suffering, and I've been very fortunate uh, that I haven't suffered with mental Ill health, in, Ill health in my life so far. I pitched it as a, a flourishing activity. Uh, other MPs, perhaps shadow ministers, uh, I would say, look, education is part of your portfolio, part of your brief. Uh, health is, criminal justice, why don't you come along and, and see what uh, mindfulness could offer you as a, a shadow minister? So it was different. Can you just quickly define what a shadow minister a shadow, is? Well, we you, don't yeah, have that here. Yeah, you have a, a government ministers uh, for 22, I think, different departments of, of, of state. You'll have a cabinet member, and then you'll have ministers underneath that cabinet member for that department. And there will be a shadow of that for the opposition. So the opposition, if there's an education uh, secretary of state for education, there'll be a shadow uh, Secretary of State for Education. Gotcha. So they shadow each other. So I would. What try, party are you in? I'm, I'm a Labour uh, Labour uh, MP. And were you only uh, recruiting from your own party? No, not 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 at all. We're, we took a cross-party approach, left and right. Sometimes extreme left, extreme right, extreme centre. Uh, MPs uh, and peers would come together. They'd leave the politics at the door, and we'd sit and meditate. Uh, sometimes in silence and. Uh, uh, sometimes guided, and we'd have uh, discussions afterwards, and we'd express our vulnerability in in those uh, uh, oak panelled select committee rooms where we delivered our uh, our mindfulness uh, uh, practice. And, and people, nobody was leaking information. Nobody was leaking, <laughs> uh, and we've had no leak uh, for, for six and a half years. And you know, some people have spoken about their alcoholism, uh, their neglect as, uh, as children. They've fallen vulnerable in front of others from different political parties, and there has been, and I think it's in the expression of that vulnerability that those bonds are strengthened, the bonds of friendship and uh, 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 understanding. And it is beginning to change the dynamic of discourse in Parliament. Uh, Tim Lawton, who's I'm the Labour co-chair, Tim Lawton MP is the Conservative co-chair, and he speaks, what's the terminology he uses? He says that um, there is this, there's an affinity amongst those who have been on this mindfulness course, and a rather more considered approach to exchanges of differing views. In other words, politicians are starting to report that they disagree better and they mm. can have better dialogue. Mm. Yeah. But it's not all uh, rainbows and unicorns. Isn't it? Like, <laughs> no, no, because, absolutely. It's, it's you, not the age of Aquarius, absolutely. <laughs> you guys had something called Brexit. <laughs> Brexit, uh, and uh, had something. We've still got yeah, it, and we'll be suffering from it for decades to yeah. come. Well, you're, but you can't figure out how to actually do the exit part. No, uh, um, Absolutely, and it's 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 you know life's about ups and downs, and political life is about political ups and political downs, and it just feels 
like we've had a three-year political down where all we've talked about is Brexit. We've made virtually no process, uh, no progress. And some of those who were in favour of Brexit three years ago when, the, uh, when we had the referendum said, you know, this will take five minutes to do. Once we've voted for it, we'll just sign these papers and Brexit will be there. It'll be one of the easiest acts that we've ever passed. And that hasn't been the case. And there is, there is massive pressure in Parliament which is, and there's massive pressure in the country and even within families, you know, different generations, there's generational differences. And it's, it's, I mean, David Cameron, um, in giving the British people a referendum, has sown the wind and we are now reaping the whirlwind. And now more than ever, we need a practice, an intervention that can help us stay balanced in these turbulent times. Do you think um, if you didn't have this, that the Brexit conversations would be even worse? I, th- I think it's still a real minority of yeah. people who have been right. on the doing course, it, and, and particularly those who have really committed to the practice over time. Yeah. What would you say the percentages of, of members of parliament who have done the course? Well, members of parliament, so the main house that's <laughs> uh-huh. been and then there's uh, the house, negotiating this. Yeah, exactly. So there's about 150 members of parliament who have been on, on the course. Is that right, Chris? Yes, and about 100 uh, peers yeah. from the House so that, of Lords. And that's out of 600 plus no, that's out of 650 MPs 650, yeah. and uh, 700, uh, 800 peers now. Exactly. So the numbers sound big, 250. Peers are members of the House of Lords. Peers are, are members yeah. of the House of Lords, yeah. So it's, the numbers sound big and impressive, 250, but that's out of a total uh, population in Parliament of uh, something like 1,400 uh, members of the Lords and members of the Commons. So we've got this small kind of um, small group that's starting to say, well, only a few years ago, they started to say this could be um, impactful on political culture. And then they started to say, it has been. I have different relationships. I find that I talk differently to people, different tone, di- bring other things, bring more of myself into the, into the conversations I have in this, in this house. Uh, and then in the last six months or eight months or so, we've actually seen demonstrations of that in the chamber itself. So there was an, there was an intervention um, just before Christmas, where, where where Tim Lawton really took the heat out of the room, there was people were kind of baying for blood almost uh, in the now infamous exchange during Prime Minister's questions, which is our kind of weekly Punch and Judy um, like question and answer with the Prime Minister. And he just it's called, an amazing spectacle, by the way. This, yeah. Before you tell the story about <laughs> Tim Lawton, um, the, for those of you who don't follow British politics, you're, you're forgiven except for maybe by the two people I'm talking to right now, but by me, you're forgiven. They, they do this thing once a week, right, where the mm, prime yeah, minister comes in and just fields questions from a whole group of uh, the members of parliament in the house, mm. right there on the floor of the House of Commons. And it gets, it's pretty hardcore. It's like mm. a press conference, but, you know, these it's from fellow politicians, not not journalists. And uh, they're screaming. Yeah. And the, the, the design of the chamber in the House of Commons is, uh, it's, it's designed like a bear pit. It's not circular. It's, it's it's not in an arc. It's it's directly well about four, four or five paces away from each other. So and they're, they're banked seats going up five or six uh, rows, and it is like a bear pit. And you have them. What's a bear pit? A bear pit is where <laughs> they used to pitch uh, two bears to fight against each other. And um, you've got the you've got the different like parties a, on each side on, on, in these banked. Uh, uh, the banked and the, the and I used to be one of the worst defenders, but. Really? Uh, uh, th- I have a hard time imagining. <laughs> <laughs> so you would scream and shout? I, uh, on occasions. And, uh, and uh, I asked the Prime Minister uh, uh, of the United Kingdom a question about mindfulness in February of this year. I'm not sure if you can uh, get, get, 
get the clip. But uh, I asked the Prime Minister a question and she an- answered uh, very knowledgeably about uh, mindfulness. And then the Speaker of the House of Commons, he intervened and said, the Honourable Member used to be very uh, kind of uh, boisterous and loud-mouthed in the chamber and he has changed his behaviour. So I got a pat on the head <laughs> from the Speaker of the House of Commons, so it must work. <laughs> okay, so back to Tim Lawton, who yeah, again, is, Lawton, he's yeah. the Conservative co-chair Conservative of, this, co-chair, of yes, the yeah. mindfulness. Yeah, so there's, there's um, this practice group in Parliament, and then there's also the policy initiative. So we're not kind of assuming that everyone who practices is interested in how this might be applied across society, um, but some of them are, and so we have this all-party group which has two co-chairs, Conservative and Labour, to inquire into how this is being applied across society. And that's where I come in. Okay. So I don't do the teaching of people in Parliament, but I do the talking about mindfulness in society. So, so yeah, back to parliamentary um, questions. Uh, and uh, there, there was yeah, a lot of heat in the chamber, uh, and Tim stood up to ask a question. And uh, his, his colleagues were going like, go on, Timmy, go on, <laughs> to, to like ramp it up, basically. Uh, and instead, he just took a took a pause, took a breath, and just said "calm" in a really like you know big way, and and the whole sort of yeah the fever pitch dropped a few a few degrees, and then just you know went, went on to ask what he wanted to ask about education funding, and it's only a, you know these are tiny things, but I think they're like baby steps or you know <laughs> green shoots, mm-hmm. and we shouldn't overstate what we you know what what individual mindfulness practice um, can do on a group level. Um, without some kind of group dialogue about how we want to change the culture together towards something that is more more mindful and more considered and more responsive rather than blindly reactive. I hope that will come when more politicians have have got that personal understanding. Um, but we've had, like, in the Member of the House of Lords, there was a debate a month or, or so before that, and we had uh, three different political parties represented where people said um, there should be more mindfulness in our international relations um, was their first intervention. Second one was well, there should be more mindfulness uh, in in the way that we uh, work with the cabinet. And then someone else said that there should be more mindfulness uh, in this house it, and gave a really good definition of it and said that we should have more of a mindful approach in the House of Lords. So, so yeah, it's um, it's quite recent this development where it's becoming part of the public record that politicians are calling for a different type of discourse. Do you, can you genuinely forecast a near future where you have a much higher level of buy-in and where you do see the kind of behavioral changes on the floor of the houses that you would like to see? The, the, what, another tipping point where we, we've seen recently is around mental health more broadly. And so in the last f- four years the public discourse around um, men- we all have mental health, um, we should all talk about it, we should all find treatment when we need it and we've got problems uh, and we should be doing preventative things to bolster our mental health has, um, in the UK at least, shifted a huge amount and that's because the royal family, the, the young royals have come out um, and campaigned about mental health. We have like you know, grime stars, you know, rappers, we have sportsmen, um, we have politicians all saying, like, you know, I've had issues and I'm better now. And here. So, so um, uh, that's been enormously helpful. It's just shown us how quickly you can have cultural change. Um, and I think we're starting to get kind of crit- critical mass, both in Parliament and in society, because the numbers we're seeing, and this is reflected in the US, I believe, is that the number of people who have meditated um, is getting towards like 15, 16% of the population. 
And if you look at how new technologies and new trends are taken up, that's the kind of point where it jumps into a mainstream conversation. I mean, I think you have two trends in both countries simultaneously and probably interrelated. You've got, um, and maybe more than two trends, but uh, you've got a growing embrace of meditation and you've got record levels of anxiety, depression, suicide. Um, and you've also got this introduction of technology, which does enable the dissemination of meditation, but it is also on a more pernicious level, enabling people to be more isolated, cut off, stuck in social media, uh, cul-de-sacs where they're comparing themselves to other people and feeling, um, you know, lesser and et cetera, et cetera. So a lot going on, these sort of interrelated self-reinforcing trends that some of them negative, but I think the meditation part of it is really riding on some of this and, and I think could be a, a positive force. I'm not poly. I'm not sort of Pollyanna about this, but um, oh, I do but, think it could be positive. And the, 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 there's a tsunami of uh, mental ill health that's sweeping the world, and the Western world especially. Jamie and I spoke at the uh, United Nations on Friday, and the UN or the World Health Organization says that by 2030, the biggest health burden on the whole of the planet will be depression. Now, not mental health per se, just depression. Wait, say that again, because that's worth the. The United, uh, the, uh, the World Health Organization says that by 2030, by 2020, uh, depression will be the second biggest health burden on the planet. By 2030, it will be the biggest health burden on the planet. And at the moment, we are dealing with depression primarily through drugs, through antidepressants, and that's important. And drugs, antidepressants have a have a uh, have a role to play. But if you have a look at the consumption of antidepressants. And I've put down written parliamentary questions to health ministers in the United Kingdom. In 1991, in England alone, there were 9 million prescriptions written for antidepressants. Last year, it was 67 million. So there's been a massive uptake in uh, the use of antidepressants in the United Kingdom. And it's the same in the United States, Australia, New Zealand, especially in the Anglo-Saxon world, but other countries as well. So, and I, and we're not, you know, uh, nine times happier uh, than 1991. Or, taking these, yeah, no, we're not. Uh, if anything, our happiness and our uh, well-being has gone down over that. And I think people are looking for something that's natural, something that's innate, something that's human, and are finding it increasingly in uh, in meditation. And Professor Mark Williams, the professor who taught from Oxford University Mindfulness Centre the man who taught us uh, uh, mindfulness in the House of Commons. He is the uh, one of three professors, including Zindel Ziegel from Toronto University and John Teasdale from Cambridge University. In 2004, they uh, produced the science that was accepted by the National Health Service in the United Kingdom for mindfulness to be used for repeat episode depression. So the science in the United Kingdom has been proven and accepted and freely available since 2004. The take-up has been minimal. Uh, and we, we need to look at the, the, the reasons for that, the lack of uh, number of... Take-up, you mean buy-in from regular people? The buy-in from regular people. Not and so much buy-in from regular people as it's the health services uh, um, not providing it where they should be. Uh, and yeah. then there has been like uh, there has been changes there in terms of the National Health Service trying to address that. But it's it's more difficult to set up a mindfulness training program with the quality of training and to hand out that you pill, need yes. and, and then to hand yep. out a pill. So, so just going back to this statistic from the World Health Organization, by the 2030, they think depression will be the biggest health burden on the planet. Yes. What... 
what do they think is driving that and what do they think the burden will look like? Um, I don't know if there's been any scientific analysis uh, as to what is bringing this about. I've got my own theories uh, and there's uh, there's a, a wonderful American sociolog- sociologist, Robert Putnam, who uh, yeah, did the book. Harvard. He wrote yeah. a book called yeah. Bowling Alone. Bowling Alone, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And he chronicled the declining community and uh, uh, and the rise in atomization and alienation. There is uh, a wonderful British journalist and psychiatrist, psychiatrist called uh, Oliver James who wrote the book Affluenza. Mm-hmm. He maintains that it is advertising that this, is, mm-hmm. that this is the main reason. The purpose of an advert is to make you unhappy with what you've got so that you'll purchase something else to make you happier. Uh, there are, well, there's a whole a slew of uh, theories about the, the impact of uh, social media, of computers, taking our, with every algorithm, alg- they've got algorithms, every time we go on the computer and we do a search, they, they can search deeper and deeper inside an individual's brain to know how we, how we work and sell adverts to that. Uh, there's, the, the new theory is the, the impact of, uh, of our gut bacteria. It's a fascinating field. That our, our gut bacteria, our gut is actually the second brain. 90% of our serotonin is produced in our gut. Mm. And that, gut, that bacteria has been damaged over the past 50 or 60 years by processed food, by overuse of antibiotics, and even some say by caesarean sections. That, 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 that micro, uh, 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 microbiome microbiome that is handed. I from, only know that because my wife is an expert. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, absolutely. That, you know that that's, uh, that through the when the baby comes through the birth canal, the, the, the baby is given the mother's uh, microbiome, and so there's many fascinating things. But I think this is an area that is worthy of uh, further research. You know, if we're, if we're facing this tsunami of mental Ill, Ill health, we need to know the reasons. Because it's all right treating the co- the, the cause, uh, treating the uh, symptoms with antidepressants or uh, uh, psychological therapies or mindfulness, but we need to get behind what's mm. causing this. And as politicians, especially, you know, we shouldn't be sacrificing our kids on the altar of profitability. Mm. I think there's a, there's an opportunity for mindfulness training to not just ad- address the symptoms. I think um, it addresses the causes more deeply in our own lives. But there's an opportunity for it to address the systemic societal context as well. So, so rather than saying that, um, uh, let's have a look on this training course about how there are nourishing and depleting things in your life, which is a common component of, of, of mindfulness-based stre- stress reduction, which uh, John Kabat-Zinn um, uh, developed and has had most of the, uh, the evidence base behind it. Um, so... Uh, some teachers have already been including the uh, the the context of people's lives within the container of that environment, sort of bringing it into the, in, into the inquiry um, about the causes of distress and happiness and and how we can change things to make more of one and less of the other. Uh, but uh, there are lots of innovators now looking about looking at how we can actually ramp that up uh, and. Um, as Chris, as Chris says, that that could be really where the the, the more profound shift uh, comes from longer term. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer owned, in service to you. 
Amica representatives are here when you need them and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. You, you've been, t- I was looking through some of your materials before we talked. And, and one of the, th- you've got a publication coming up. I hope I have this right. It's called Living on Purpose. And it's about, which can, you know, I'm just to, to my listeners may sound like a little vague, but what, what does that actually mean? But you're actually talking about, and this is your term, a crisis of values, which I think goes at this whole Putnam theory of bowling alone, community has dissipated. We are kind of atomized individuals stuck in our uh, curated Instagram feeds, looking at other people's curated Instagram feeds feeling inferior, not having our mirror neurons uh, activated by actual face-to-face communications with other members of Homo sapiens. And a deeper part of this, uh, a a previous guest on this podcast has referred to something called junk values, that we're taught this myth of Western individualism, that it's we need to just build up ourselves all the time, and that if we're stuck in this kind of selfing mode, uh, and then, and and it's aggravated through what's what has been referred to as ego itching powder. Of uh, that's not my term; it's a great term of again a, pre- a previous guest. That we're we're going to be unhappy, mm-hmm. and it's because we've been taught these junk values like junk food, and that it, ap- it appears to me that you're working on what you call a crisis of value. So, are you are we talking about the same thing here? I think that's Jamie's terminology. Do you, do you want to speak to that, Jamie? Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. He's going to clear his throat before he drops some wisdom on us. Yeah, Yeah, so so we um, uh, I might just mention another part of the story here in terms of the, the um, mindfulness in politics. Yeah. So in 2013, teaching started in, in the UK Parliament. It also started in a couple of other parliaments, like in Sweden. Um, uh, then Chris and his colleagues helped launch it in some other places, like the Netherlands. And since then, we've helped. Um, politicians to start mindfulness training in about sort of 10 other national legislatures. Um, so France and Ireland and... Uh, Iceland. And Iceland. And, Haven't uh, cracked and the US others. yet. Haven't cracked the US I want to talk about that, but we'll, we'll, we'll carry on. We're waiting for the invite. Yeah. It's a separate program. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. going to be... A, it's a hard case, so you need to... Yeah. You need some special but machinery. I think there's some there's some opportunities at state level, and if, if we get invited to come and speak to... The state legislators, then we'd be we'd be happy. You're a shoe in in California. Yeah. So, um, so over the years, we've we've been visiting these different places. Last year, we went to sort of seven seven parliaments uh, alone. Back in 2017, we pulled together this um, uh, national congress, not national con, international congress of uh, of mindful uh, politicians or, or politicians who practice. 
And uh, we had 40 from 14 countries and we had a, a, a day and a half led by John Kabat-Zinn in, in, in Westminster. And it was really interesting in, in, in that session how politicians were talking about the role of this in their lives. Uh, one Italian MP said that, um, a member of parliament said that, um, you know, one of the issues is that we do things just because there's pressure. Um, and we, we do things that are out of alignment with, with what we really want to achieve uh, because of the, the momentum and, and the fierceness of, uh, of that environment. Uh, and uh, another Dutch MP, uh, Esther Ohans, said um, that uh, she finds that mindfulness helps us to stay m- more in touch with what's most important to her, her values, and act in line with that. And so, and Chris has been you know, talking about this as well. I'm sure Tim, Tim and Ryan has uh, for, for years. So, uh, it was really these anecdotes that made us think, like, what is what is going on here? Let's let's drill into this a little bit more more deeply. And so, yes, we've um, we've spent a, a a year or so at this uh, the organisation that I run, which is like a policy institute think tank, uh, researching, interviewing people, uh, and pulling together what we think is is um, a case for for mindfulness, not as an, as an isolated or as like a siloed intervention for um, for addiction or for depression or for anxiety, um, but instead a, a fundamental capacity that could uh, help us in society um, be more in tune with what is more, most important to us, what is going to um, serve us and act in line with that. And critically, it comes back to this um, responding creatively, not reacting blindly, um, and, and so or reacting out of conditioning or habit. There's so much like the momentum, the stream of, of our culture is going in one direction, and many of us are kind of waking up and feeling that that's not that's not right, but it's so difficult to turn against that stream and act in a different way. Um, so, so yeah, mindfulness training people re- re- are reporting helps them to do that. And but on this crisis of values thing, mm-hmm. that kind of oh, stuck yeah. out to oh, me. Yeah. What's what's give me the download on that? Yeah, so so um, there's a, an organisation in the UK called Common Cause, which looks at how we are motivated by different value sets. So roughly speaking, there's the intrinsic value set and the extrinsic value set. So intrinsic is like um, I'm, I want to invest in community and love and relationships and meaning and purpose and, and uh, generativity building stuff. And extrinsic um, values tend to be those things that you were, that you were referencing there. So fame, uh, material wealth. Um, and, um, and and status, and, and and it looks like from from the research that these inhibit each other. So the more we um, boost one, the other goes down. And so advertising potentially is really spent. You know, a lot of dollars are going into boosting the extrinsic um, value set. However, if you ask people what is most important to you, what do you try and govern your life um, through? Seventy five percent of people will say the intrinsic values are more important to me. That's what I want to live in line with. However. They think that everybody else is extrinsically motivated. So you ask them the question, "How do other people, you know, um, live their lives?" And they say, "Well, they're all extrinsically motivated." About, seven, about the same, seventy-five percent. So it's kind of like a prisoner's dilemma. It's like I, I want these things, but everyone else is out for them for themselves. And we kind of need to have a different conversation about, you know, um, what it means to be human and what we really want want in life. Uh, and so the, the challenge is that. It is going in the wrong direction, and from my from my point of view, we are getting more extrinsically motivated over over time. So I think we have have a conversation about and, and surface what what we really want. Have a conversation about values, make it explicit, rather than letting the um, the, the the algorithm designers to you know, dictate it for us. And this is not new. Robert Kennedy uh, was talking about. Uh, 
measuring things in monetary terms back in the 1960s, you know, and the, the true things, the true things of value back in the 1960s and now and forever is, is marriage and family and relationship. And we seem to have lost sight of that, you know, through pursuing uh, materialism. I mean, when, when, when my, I've got a 24-year-old uh, daughter, Sarah, now. When she was born and I held her in my hands, I, I looked at her and I didn't say, I think, I want you to be a chief executive. I want you to be the prime minister of my country. I looked at her and said, I want you to be a happy child, a happy baby and a happy adult. And, you know, we're far from our natures. And this isn't, there was a, W.H. Auden wrote a, a poem, I think he got a, a Nobel Prize for it in 1947, The Age of Anxiety. Uh, there was a book written called, uh, by a treesman, I think, in 1953 called The, the, the Lonely Crowd. We're, we're, we're far from our natures and it's about reconnecting. And for me, mindfulness, uh, you know, you're supposed to say what is your intention every time you, 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 you go into mindfulness. And for me, it's about connection. It's about connection with myself. Uh, it's about connection with the people around me, the ones I love, the ones I'm indifferent to, and the ones I don't like. And it's about connection, indeed, to uh, to the planet, <laughs> without sounding too fluffy, to the universe. You know, I am made of the same stuff as meteors, comets, and stars. And I think sometimes we are so focused downwards on, I've got to have this, I've got to have that, I've got to get here, I've got to get there, that we forget to look upwards and realise, you know, there's big things going on out there. We are a speck on a piece of dust in the cosmos. And I think that appreciation that there are bigger things than ourselves and our egos uh, needs to be felt by individuals, the 7 billion people on this planet, because it's the only way we're going to rescue it. Three things come to mind listening to you talk. One is there is a quote that I think I used in a book. Uh, I don't remember where I got it from, that if you're always looking around, you're never looking up. Or if you're never looking up, you're always looking around. Yep. Uh, so, And the, the, based on that, I was just going to say there is some research that I, can, I, don't, I can't cite chapter and verse, but uh, it shows that the feeling of awe, A-W-E, yep. can lead to better behavior and happiness. So that, the sense mm-hmm. of being a speck in the cosmos, or uh, there's a, an incredible... Pic, uh, picture that's a, the, the the wallpaper on my home computer, which is called Pale Blue Dot, and it's a picture of Earth from outer space, and all it is is a pale blue dot, and you really get a sense of all of our, I think it was uh, Carl Sagan talks, rhapsodizes about this picture, about all of our dramas, everything in human history has played out in what is, at best, a pale blue dot for, to most of the rest yep. of the universe, probably invisible to the rest of it, really. Um the third thing I want to say, though, is all of this sounds good in theory, but I just think about my own life. I'm a TV newsman. You know, I have to have some public footprint. I have to have a social media profile. I have to. I write books. I want them to sell, Absolutely. et cetera, et cetera. So you're a politician. You've got to run for re-election. And so- in a democracy, you have got to say, vote to, vote for me. Yes. I'm a good guy. Yeah. Look over here. I'm here. Uh, and I, uh, I raised this issue because it was worrying me for a number of years with uh, Professor Mark Williams, and uh, I said, in a democracy, we have to project ourselves, we have to say, my party's better than that party, I'm a good person in my party. That that involves ego, that involves projecting yourself. He said, and it always comes down to this, it's about intention. Why are you doing that? And if it's just about your ego, if it's not about wanting to create a better you, a better community, a better society, a better world, then perhaps your ego is out of control. so it's about intention. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing wrong with ego. There's, uh, ego. there's nothing wrong with anger. 
really, if, if it's, it's how we direct it mm. for the purpose and the intention of our ego or our anger and many of the other uh, values that we think could be potentially do you negative. Think, do you think it's a politician? I'll, I'll, I'll go first. I'll say for me as a public figure, I, you know, my meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, talks about motivation, another word for intention, I think, although the Buddhists are pretty persnickety about language, so there may be some <laughs> difference in there, but motivation, it runs along a spectrum. So, um, you know, where there's, and it's going to be messy. So it's going to run from the high-minded to the crass. Mm-hmm. And so for me, as I think about what I, why I do what I do, why do I have a podcast, why am I writing more books, why do I you know, maniacally go on television, wear makeup and all this other stuff. Why do I do, why do I give speeches? Why do I do all that? On the high-minded end of it is, you know, I do, I do think it, you know, journalism and and mindfulness, my two professional pursuits, can be healing forces on the planet. Um, But am I, do I also like money and attention? Yes. And that hasn't gone away just because I've started doing meditation. So I ask you as a politician, has that stuff, has the sort of negative aspects of the ego gone away? Or is your intention pure now after all this meditation? They're more in balance than, uh, you know, I spoke at the Mm. United Nations. When I was 12 years old, I drew, did a project on the United Nations. And I drew a lovely picture of the UN building. And I started my speech on Friday about that. And so you just spoke at the United Nations. I just spoke on the United You're Nations. You're here in New York because you just yeah. spoke at the United Nations. Uh, on Friday. And I, I introduced my uh, my speech with that. And it was my ego had been stroked. I was drawing <laughs> this picture 48 years ago. And, uh, the, the, and 48 years later, I'm speaking at the United Nations. And I did feel something special. And I can't lie about that. But it's, it's, it's the purpose for which I was there. And that if we can get the United Nations as a representative of 193 countries around the world, so to explore mindfulness and use it as an intervention to, to benefit the world, then that for me is a noble cause. You know? And I, you know, I did get a buzz out of it. I can't deny that. So the buzz is there, and I'll, I'll let you jump in a second because Jamie looks like he, he's going to clear his throat and drop some more wisdom. <laughs> um, but the, so the buzz is there. Uh, um, I'm asking these questions for completely self-interested purposes because I'm trying to feel better about my ego. So just just to be open. Um, the buzz is there, but it's it, and it doesn't mean you can't, you know, want the attention or the votes or whatever it is. But it's a, it's, it's more in balance with what really matters. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. You know, and, and in politics, you can see, and most people, virtually everybody, goes into politics for the right reasons to improve the world. But you can sometimes think you get taken along by it, and power is power, power corrupts, yeah, and yeah. absolute power corrupts. Absolutely, Absolutely yes. as that Lord Acton said. Um, but sometimes you can see people who have come in as decent people, but they they start to tr- go ahead by treading on the on the heads of of, of their colleagues, uh, and uh, and getting the promotion becomes you know the great thing. But there's nothing as X as an ex politician, you know. And one minute you can be up, and I know because I lost my seat in uh, in 2015. After 18 years as a as a member of parliament, I lost my seat. Um, and you can be a prime minister, and then you're gone. Did you win it back? I won it back. Yes. Okay. Uh, the prime the prime minister Theresa May, who had a majority in parliament, decided that she wanted a bigger majority. She's a conservative MP, so she called an election to increase the size of the majority. She lost the majority, and I got back in. So what was that like for you after? It was amazing. No, no. What was it like? The bad part. The, <laughs> no, the bad part. Well, John Cabot's in. 
in 2012 said to me, he's one of my heroes on the planet. We should just say who he is because yeah, I think yeah. most people most people know who he is, but in will listen to this podcast, but he's a former MIT microbiologist who basically invented what's called mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR, which allowed meditation to get into boardrooms and locker rooms and prisons and all that because he secularized Buddhist meditation. I think he is, well, he's a friend, so take this with a grain of salt, but I think he's a historical figure in this Development of MBSR, um, uh, I think, will be a turning could be a, a positive turning point in human relations. Uh, absolutely, and I think he's he's worthy of a, a, a Nobel Prize for the work that he's done, the pioneering work he's done. And interesting, you should say that there's a British historian called Toynbee who said, when we look back on the 20th century, the greatest thing that we will see is when Eastern uh, wisdom has been met by Western science. And I think we're living in that moment now. Um, so the the point was the question was which is a what was what what, what was, was that like, like? So John Kabat-Zinn yeah, said yeah, something so, to you so, so John Kabat-Zinn said to me uh, I think 2012 13 Chris a word of advice work on your parachute before you need to open it mm. and I that, and I had been working on my parachute for six years and when I lost in 2015 he's such a big hearted man. Uh, he emailed me. He said, Chris, sorry to see you've lost your seat. How are you getting on? And I emailed him back. I said, John, I took your advice. I worked on my parachute. Uh, I've opened it, and it works. And uh, it worked for me. In 2015, I thought I'd be thrown completely off balance, and I wasn't. I was absolutely amazed. Of course, I, t- I took the knock. Uh, a few sleepless nights, but then I got on with my life. I, if, if, if anything, when I look back on that two-year period when I was out, that gave me a new life, uh, a new lease of life, to visit the Australian Parliament, the French Parliament three times, uh, the Irish Parliament, and, and to, he- to help spread mindfulness in those legislatures around the world. You know, it, it, oh, that two-year period is, is one of the highlights of my life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, out, out of badness came good. <clears throat> Jamie, clear your throat. <clears> throat> <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm tracking back a bit here. But I just wanted to clar- clarify that um, I wasn't sort of setting up a binary thing between the intrinsic and the extrinsic motivations. So, so it's not like we have good people and bad people, or we have you know, selfish people or altruistic people. That we have both of these forces in our lives. It's just that um, uh, people will select. Which ones are, are on the whole more important? And you know, a lot, a lot of great, beautiful things have been done in the in the name of wanting recognition. It's just that that recognition for could, could be for stuff which is positive for the community, positive for the for the for, the, for society, uh, rather than just uh, look at me. I have more stuff than you. Yeah, no, that's well said. It's about balance. It's, mm-hmm. it's about balance. Um, uh, let me ask you about the United States. So. Because I promised to do this earlier, and I really want to do it. Um, I know you're. I assume you're both familiar that with the fact that we have a Congress here. Um, otherwise, we would be a colony of yours. Um, <laughs> and our Congress and our politics generally is quite nasty right now. I find it very disturbing personally as a, as an American the the kind of the level of discourse, both in the in the polity at large, but also specifically in the Congress. And it's not new. I mean, we've been at each other's throats since the 1776, but it's at a, I would say, another sort of uh, low ebb 
And so you you look at our Congress. Do you think there's any way you can get a camel's nose under the tent here and get some mindfulness in? And and is there any way to do better than my uh, friend Tim Ryan has been able to do? Um, Well, Tim Ryan wrote a marvelous book called Mindful Nation, which I think has uh, been changed now to Healing Nation. Healing America. Right? He- healing America. Uh, healing America. That's his campaign uh, manifesto. Oh, yeah, okay. Absolutely. I think, right? <laughs> I, I, I and that, that book, at the end of each chapter, and it deals with uh, mind, uh, mindfulness in education, mindfulness in health, mindfulness in the prisons. He, he lists eight things that the reader could do to promote mindfulness. So I, I would say, you know, mindfulness doesn't have to come from the top. It doesn't have to come from a parliament or a congress. It can come from below as well. And I think the very fact that Jamie said 15% of Americans meditate, 35% of them practice yoga. There is a yearning out there, a realization that they are, they as individuals, their families are disconnected and they want something. So that pressure could come from below if people were to read uh, Tim's book and, and, and act upon that and ask their governor if they will come and sit and meditate with a class of eight and nine-year-olds and feel some peace. So it doesn't have to come from the top. It could from, come from state le- at state level. It could come from city level. And there are three uh, projects now to create mindfulness, mindful cities uh, in the U.S. So it hasn't going to come from um, – th- th- those are, Jamie, the three cities? Um, well, two of them aren't public yet. So oh, sorry. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so was, but they, uh, they recently launched the uh, Flint, Michigan mindful city. Flint, program. Michigan, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so – even if even if uh, I'm gathering, you're, you're you're telling me even if the Congress is hopeless, um, it can happen in many ways. It can, and, and, and maybe if if there's a lack of interest from uh, the right in, in Congress, we can bring over some politicians from other countries. Oh well, actually, I know people on the right. Um, I yeah, I don't know if it's public, but I know people no. on the right who are interested in this stuff. I don't know if it's partisan, as much as it is just not wanting to be seen as looking weird or just yeah. not being interested full stop. Maybe there's an idea that it's going to reduce your edge. I don't know what it is, but it hasn't, doesn't appear to have taken hold. Yeah, um, but, but it has in other areas of the, uh, of the globe. And it's just, in some countries, it's been led by the right. The first parliament to uh, introduce mindfulness practice was the Swedish parliament, and it was uh, led by a wonderful woman called Anne-Marie Broden, who was on, uh, who was on the right uh, in Wales, it's been led by uh, Darren Miller, a conservative assembly member. You know, these are these are these are human uh, human gifts that have appeared that, that appeal to across the spectrum. They're in there in every wisdom tradition that's ever existed, in native uh, in native practices, you know, the Maoris or the Aborigines or the, na- the Native Americans. It's there. It's uh, and people can feel it and they want it. So uh, you, when we're talking about. We kind of made a, a glancing blow there at, at partisanship, and that it reminds me of something else I came across in the briefing materials that were given to me before I sat down with you guys, which is that in Wales, a mindfulness course has been developed specifically to help policymakers consider their own objectivity and yep. biases. So I'm really interested in that because I, I think a lot of what's going on, a lot of what's wrong with our culture here domestically in the U.S., but globally as well, is – the otherizing of of people uh, based on pigmentation, political beliefs, gender, et cetera, et cetera. So I think in ter- if we're trying to engender better behavior, getting people to be okay, understand that they have biases and not so owned by them is a very intriguing idea. So how's it going in Wales? 
Uh, well, let's, let's say um, a researcher called Rachel Lilly from Aberystwyth University, and she's been taking top-flight Welsh civil servants on a course uh, using mindfulness to, to spot their bias and to compensate for that bias, so to open their mind and their heart and their soul, uh, to, to make sure that what they're delivering in terms of policy terms uh, has been as far as possible, their own individual biases has been taken out of that as, as, as senior policymakers. Mm. And uh, I, I visited uh, Rachel Lilly, myself, and Becca Crane, who's from the Bangor, uh, Bangor Mindfulness Centre, went to see the Prime Minister of Wales about this. And he's interested. Um, so there's, there's big hope there. And what we hope is that where best practice emerges, whether it be in Wales with civil servants, whether it be with the Marines, uh, mindfulness in the Marines in the uh, in America, or the American penal system where uh, mindfulness has been introduced, that we can spot this best practice and give it to politicians who practice mindfulness around the world, so they they can look at the science, the best practice, and roll it out in their own country. Mm, I, I think the the program uh, in Wales offers a bit of hope for the U.S. Congress as well, because we're framing mindfulness training in the context of decision making, um, of, of performance as as leaders. So rather than coming in and saying, here's a, here's a well-being course or here's some sort of stillness to help you deal with stuff, it's like, here's how we can all be better politicians and, and better leaders. Uh, so some of the um, members of parliament in, in, uh, in London talk about how mindfulness is really helpful for public speaking or helpful for uh, getting over uh, um, uh, an interview that didn't go so well and sort of forgiving yourself and, and, and getting on with the business of the day. Uh, and so there are ways in which we can we can target it to that uh, the, the job of governance uh, to help frame it in a way that might might, might connect with them. Uh, some of the other uh, framings that were some of the other benefits that have emerged, I think, from your research or qualitative research of talking to the members of parliament is they're better at focusing, given the sort of you know the amount of briefing papers and tweets and whatever <laughs> coming their insane. way, impulse control. Kindness, metacognition, meaning, you know, the perspective of being aware that they have emotions, therefore they don't have to be so owned by them. So it sounds like the people who are taking this course are getting a lot out of it. Exactly. And we have those, we have those stories now. We can come and sort of tell people. Um, Chris can you know, tell um, uh, his, uh, his, his colleagues in other countries, look, this is having really yeah, tangible uh, uh, impact on our, our working lives. One of the things that's just uh, just really uh, touched me is is how difficult politicians' jobs were. I mean, mm. I didn't I didn't get into politics um, or in, in, into policy making um, because it's uh, been a long term uh, ambition. Found myself here because I care so much about widening access to to mindfulness training. And I've just been uh, meeting so many politicians, feeling how how difficult a role that they they have in the UK. Anyway, it's a really sort of Toxic relationship between public and uh, between the public and uh, uh, and uh, and politicians, and so seeing how mindfulness training helps them to deal with just an unbelievable amount of information they have to absorb in order to do their do their jobs, uh, in order to have that kind of th- thick skin, um, has uh, yeah has just seeing their humanity and and seeing how tough it is has been uh, been a really important part of this. The um, the thing amongst the, the Amongst those benefits, I'd like to to pick up on though is is this idea of, of metacognition, of uh, see, having a bit of perspective on our, our our thoughts and emotions. So, if we are our, our, our ideas, 
um, then if that idea is challenged, then we see it as a personal offence and a personal attack. If we can separate ourselves a little bit from, from that idea, you and I can critique it from a bit of, bit, bit of distance. So it's not me you're, you're attacking, it's, it's, it's the idea, idea itself. I think that's one of the, kind of the, the longer-term hopes, really, is that we have a bit of maturity uh, around um, uh, discourse, and that could be the mechanism that under, underpins this disagreeing better uh, effect which uh, has been reported. And John Kabat-Zinn, uh, one, of, one of his many lines, he said that uh, man uh, uh, is homo sapien sapien, the man who is aware that he is aware. I use that line all the time. I yeah. don't give him any credit, but I use it all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it may, it may not have been John's. It's, no, it's, 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 yeah. it's where I heard it, yeah. the first time I ever heard from it. And we should recognize that. Well, what we're saying here, in, in essence, is that these are, it, this is being, about being human, mm-hmm. about being true to our roots. That's a beautiful place to leave it. Um, thank you both for doing this. Thank you for behaving. I know you like to yell. And scream, so <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Glad that Chris didn't pound the table. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As we say in Parliament. <laughs> Before we go, um, just uh, we do this thing at the end of the show, which is a uh, plug zone. So, just can you can you list off if, if people want to get information on either of you individually or on the work you're doing? Where can they go? So. Uh, the Mindfulness Initiative uh, has a website where you can find out about the, the politicians, the all-party group, and about um, our broader work. Uh, and the URL for that is themindfulnessinitiative.org. And uh, you can download the Mindful Nation UK report, um, our, our workplace-focused uh, document, Building the Case for Mindfulness in the Workplace, um, as well as find links to the, um, the kind of academic paper that, that, that uh, reviews a lot of those those benefits that you mentioned that politicians are reporting. Gentlemen, thank you very much. A pleasure to sit with you. Yeah, really thank good. You. Thank you. Again, big thanks to Chris and Jamie. Uh, I, I do want to say just as a quick little fact here that Chris, he gave out his email address. Um, he, he contacted me later to say he gave out the not the exact right one. So here's the right one if you've got a pen. We'll put this in the show notes too. Ruan C. So that's R-U-A-N-E-C at parliament.uk. R-U-A-N-E-C at parliament.uk. Always dicey to give your email address out publicly, but I respect them for doing it. Um, that was a fun episode. Let's uh, let's do some voicemails. Here's number one. Hey, it's Tim from Leamington, Ontario, Canada. Love the app. Love, uh, love 10% Happier. Love the podcast. Uh, my question specifically is when I'm meditating and I'm focusing on the breath and I get caught in a train and I keep coming back to the breath, Lots of times I'll, I'll switch focus to my hands as a, as a focal point, for example, and, yeah, just be really concentrating on that, get caught in the train, come back to my hands, get caught in the train, come back to my hands. So my question is just, is that, is that good? Is that all right? Is that, is that proper meditation form? Or should I just, am I switching, am I cheating when I do it this way? Uh, is it better for me just to come back to my breath? On a side note, uh, love the app, love everything about it. I'm, I'm married, have uh, have a 16-year-old that I'm teaching how to drive, and we come back from a stressful driving experience. Neither one of us were very happy, and uh, my wife said, you know what, you you, you got to switch from meditation. you got to take yoga. you got to get better at this. And it was funny because I walked away smiling to myself thinking, this must be working a little bit. I must be 10% better for somebody to be noticing and suggesting something that would make me even better than what I am right now. And uh, regardless, I, I know that I enjoy it. I know that I feel better. It's part of my habit every morning. 
and uh, I thank you for it and for talking a little bit about it on Good Morning America. So, a couple plugs to you. Hope you guys are all having a great day. Thanks a lot. Enjoy. Take care. Really appreciate it, Tim. Thank you very much. Glad to hear it's working for you. So let me get to your question. Absolutely, it's fine. Using the sensations in your hands as an object of meditation is totally kosher. I have a couple more things to say about it. One is that, uh, and this, uh, this note comes from Ray Hausman, who is the chief of our coaching unit. I don't know if I'm giving her the right title, but anyway, that's essentially her function. She's the boss of our coaches. Uh, Now, uh, even many users of the app are unaware that we have these coaches who you can text with uh, through right through your app, and they will answer your questions as long as you want. Uh, These are experienced meditators, not – this is not a chat bot – experienced meditators who love taking questions from our users, and they will answer any question you have. So Ray's actually going to help me start answering some of these questions, and she's brilliant, so that's good for me and for anybody who listens to me. Um, and, and her point when she heard you ask this question about uh, focusing on the hands is that over time, you may want to extend that beyond the hands to the whole body because that can give you a sort of more panoramic awareness of even sort of less sensitive areas of the body where it's harder to feel the sensations, at least at first. And this can just boost your ability to pay attention, especially as you move through the day and subtly painful things in your body uh, can impact your behavior sometimes subconsciously. The other thing I'd like to say is that I think it makes sense to do some switching in meditation between Uh, You know, if you're trying to stay with the breath and you're having trouble with that and you might want to move to your hands or you might want to move to an open awareness. But I would – and this I'm just cribbing from my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, who said things like this to me. You might want to be careful of switching too rapidly because that can create a kind of, I don't know, um, uh, a sense of – a lack of orderliness in your meditation. So I think when you do it, you want to be doing it with some kind of in a, in a, in a somewhat stately fashion so that you're not all over the place. But so that's the long answer. The short answer is what you're doing is great. The long answer is that over time you may want to um, move beyond the hands and develop awareness all over your body and just keep an eye on how rapidly you're switching between the breath and the hands slash body. Thanks again, Tim. Really appreciate it. Let's go to the second voicemail. Hi, Dan. This is Amy from Montana. I have a question regarding decision-making and types of meditation. If you're really struggling with a big life decision, is there a certain type of meditation or a way of meditation that can really help you kind of get in touch with your inner guide or your inner answer? Anything you have to offer would be great. Thanks so much for all you do, Dan. Have a great day. I do have something to say. As usual, this is stolen from somebody else. Um, that probably makes it better than whatever I would make up. I was talking about this very issue with Joseph Goldstein, um, who's a uh, obviously a big, big teacher on the 10% Happier app and a big figure in my life. And he mentioned a process uh, that I haven't actually tried that much because I'm a horrible student, clearly. But I, I would pass it along to you as something you might try which is that if you've got something you're trying to figure out, a creative issue you're working on or a decision in your life, or if you're trying to discern, in my case, sometimes I was trying to think like, 
what are my real motives for an act uh, action I'm considering. At the beginning of a meditation, per Joseph, maybe just seed your mind with the question. Why am I about to do this? Should I do this next thing? Seed your mind with the question. But then, and this is tricky, drop the question. You are not, and, and, and meditate as you normally would. If you're on your breath, you're watching your breath come in and go out. And every time you get distracted, start again. You are not, this is not a contemplation exercise where you're sitting and mulling over the decision. You are purely just meditating, but you're, so you're putting your, your mind in a meditative space, which is all about um, uh, endeavoring gently to focus on one thing at a time. And then when you get distracted, kind of, in a friendly way, bringing your attention back to whatever it is you're trying to focus on, your breath, the feeling of your hands, whatever, whatever. So again, you are not sitting there affirmatively deciding to think about the decision. It's just that you have put it into your mind stream in a general way, and then you go about your meditation. And Joseph's theory is, and I, I assume this is based on his own personal experience, that doing this may put you into a space where you can make connections that you wouldn't be able to make if you were sort of pacing around actively thinking about something, which, by the way, we're not ruling out. You you can and should do that, too. But this is another way to kind of put your mind into a different kind of zone that might allow for the emergence of new and, and different thoughts. The aforementioned Ray Hausman weighed, on this, weighed in on this, too, that there's – her argument is that there's a real power to not knowing this – we don't like this feeling of not knowing something. We kind of – we rush to an answer. But if you can sit with that ambiguity, it can lead to, as she says, a deeper discernment. And I agree with that, that if you can be okay with the tension of not knowing and just sit with it for a little while, sometimes – an answer will emerge. It may not, may not be the answer you want. It may, ha- may not happen on your timetable. It may not work at all. But these are all things to play with. So thanks for that question. Two great questions this week. Really appreciate it. Big thanks to all the folks who make this podcast possible. Ryan Kessler, Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston. Mike's working the boards today. Mike D. Big thanks, of course, as always, seriously to the podcast insiders. Those are the podcast listeners who give us feedback every week. I really love that, and I'm very grateful. And uh, we will be back next Wednesday with uh, another show for you. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. 
pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. (laughs) 